Want to help your teachers save over 10 hours per week? Introduce them to School AI. It's not just a tool, it's a partner in the classroom. With School AI, teachers can plan courses in minutes, get real-time learning data, and provide one-on-one tutoring. Plus, it's free for teachers. Visit SchoolAI.com today. School AI, the classroom operating system of the future. That's SchoolAI.com. Focal Point K-12 is an innovative tool that helps teachers and students manage student portfolios. It provides a digital portfolio for students to store their work, set and track their own learning goals, and earn credentials and industry certifications. The platform also uses blockchain technology to ensure the security and safety of student data. Teachers can use Focal Point K-12's real-time dashboards to track student progress and save time with AI-assisted scoring. To learn more, visit focalpoint.education. Principles. Research shouldn't be a maze for students. Scribble offers a unified platform streaming the research and writing process. It integrates with major educational tools, ensures authentic student work, and provides educators with real-time insights. Elevate your school's academic rigor. Learn more at scribble.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-L-E dot com. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where I help you stop putting out fires and start leading. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am excited to have CJ Cassiata on the program. Uh, CJ is a creative strategist and award-winning media producer. Uh, He is the author of the book, Get Weird, Discover the Surprising Secret to Making a Difference, and his new book, The Forgotten Art of Being Ordinary, uh, just came out this year, so definitely check that out. CJ, welcome to Transformative Principle. I'm happy to have you here. Thanks for having me, Jethro. Appreciate it. Yeah, so this uh, this is part of the Summer of AI series where we're talking about artificial intelligence. Thankful it is to the our... Summer of AI, by the way, isn't it? It, it sure is. It really uh, is. I can't go on LinkedIn without any uh, any uh, post mentioning AI and what I should do about it. Oh, uh, it's impossible, and um, and you're not using it right. And if you just follow my <laughs> ten steps, then you'll right. you'll you'll know how to do it. So yeah, yeah, it uh, it's it's pretty crazy. So. Um, Appreciate you being here. Uh, this this was a good conversation about um, about the idea of understanding who we really are and and not forgetting that despite all these technological advancements, all these tools that we have. And I I appreciate that conversation. Uh, what what do you think people should look forward to from our conversation today? I think people should look forward to some really really big ideas and sort of pushing the boundaries of what what could be possible. I think I'll put a big giant asterisk on, you know, a lot of our conversations about reforms that could happen, changes that could be made. And I know we're talking to educators who are like, hey, I'm just trying to get through the day. I'm just trying to get through the week. And so when you hear this conversation, know that we are talking about dismantling huge, huge systems, not things that you need to take on. <laughs> and shoulder 
necessarily, but hopefully things that you could get excited about and at least know that other people who are thinking about education, who are thinking about the future, who are thinking about students and kids and the next generation are also hoping for and wanting and having conversations about. Yeah. And people who have been listening to my podcast know that this, uh, this is a path I often take. (laughs) So this is, this will not be too much of a surprise. Uh, (laughs) I've, I've said many times that the one thing that the pandemic really taught us was that everything in school is made up and none of it matters. (laughs) And uh, that is really the case. And what we're talking about today is the stuff that does matter. And Uh, it is the only thing, in my opinion, worth teaching our youth. And yeah. um, and so I'm excited for people to to hear our perspectives on that, even though we didn't say those specific phrases in the podcast. Um, yeah. There's that's that's really what I believe in. And this is all that really matters. Uh, pretty much nothing else does. So we'll get to this interview with CJ in just a moment. Thanks, CJ. We'll talk to you in a sec. Time is a precious commodity. As a principal, you know this all too well. Between lesson planning, grading, and providing personalized feedback, the hours in a day can quickly disappear. What if you could help your teachers get some of that time back? Introducing School AI. School AI is not just a tool. It's your teacher's partner in the classroom. Help your teachers save over 10 hours a week on busy work, allowing them to focus on what they do best, teaching. With School AI, teachers can plan courses in minutes, get real-time data on learning, and even provide one-on-one tutoring for every student. School AI also provides a FERPA-compliant chat GPT experience. But that's not all. School AI's co-teacher feature is like a personal assistant, adapting daily lessons to student interests, checking for understanding, and even automating parent communication. And the best part? It's free for teachers. So if you're ready to reclaim your time and transform your school with the power of AI, Visit schoolai.com today. School AI, the classroom operating system of the future. Visit them at schoolai.com. All right, CJ, let's talk about, you've got this book out called The Forgotten Art of Being Ordinary and talks about humanity. How, what does it mean to maintain our humanity? What does humanity even mean? Maintaining humanity means to practice the forgotten art of being ordinary. So I was talking to this researcher who does all of this general uh, generational research on anybody from you know millennials to uh, Gen X to boomers, Gen Z. And she was saying, she was talking to a bunch of Gen Z kids. And she said this, the, the scariest thing in all of her conversations was how every kid who didn't even know each other, she was talking to kids from all around the country, they all thought that in order to be a complete and successful human, they also had to be a personal brand as well. So she was telling me, man, humans and brands, the fact that we have to be both of these things, and that's something that kids today are just being born into that is such a massive cultural shift that we need to pay attention to. And so that one conversation really was the spark to write this new book, The Forgotten Art of Being Ordinary. We need to be okay with being these messy, complex meat machines that we were born with, hands down, period. We don't have to be personal brands. We don't have to elevate or project 
or Photoshop ourselves, if we can have reverence for the base model, how we come out, that's what it means to maintain our humanity in a world that is increasingly becoming automated. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much to that. This reverence for the base model, I love that phrase because because um, that's what we all are. We are the base model. We're not, you know, some people may have, you know, special things that make them look more special. Like I just watched the movie Air about Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan is yeah. a special guy, um, but deep down inside, he's really just the base model as well, right? Yeah. And And, you know, he's constantly working and competing and trying, striving to be his best. And that's what... Uh, makes him elevate, but you don't have to be that to have a fulfilling life, right? Exactly, right. And it's it's we're never going to put the genie back in the bottle, right? I'm not a luddite. I'm not saying let's just all you know do away with technology and media and all of that stuff. But if we don't move forward with a collective understanding of what it means to be human and all of that, that all the reverence and credibility that that comes with we're going to continue to steer in a direction where the technology we create owns us versus us having control of it. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is, this is so powerful as we're talking about AI so much this summer and the, the things that one of the questions that I keep asking is, are we training the models or are the models training us? And, you know, we've certainly seen that, in some regards, social media has certainly trained us to act certain ways and to behave in certain ways. And, and there's some really fascinating uh, ideas about what that looks like and whether or not that's good or bad. Um, And, you know, that everybody can make their own decision about that. But overall, like, nobody, hardly anybody is satisfied with who they are. Right? Right. So, so how do we how do we help people be satisfied with that base model that they are? Right. And again, that doesn't mean that you don't aspire to be something better, greater, to improve yourself, but it does mean having a baseline for uh, dignity and and yeah. human worth that is, is unbelievably important. It's becoming more and more important as we are seeing all these sort of kayfabe if to borrow a, a term from from pro wrestling where it's like people the general audience sort of thinks you're being real but you're really pretending but they're not in on that whole narrative like as that continues to come with an increase in the u- u- ubiquity of media technology human worth human dignity having a, a baseline value and a collective sort of understanding and agreement on what that is is going to become more and more important. Yeah. And, and we have to have this understanding that no matter where we're at, we are worthy of love, of admiration, of acceptance, of um, being involved to the level that we want to be. Um, And I'm in this, this, this coaching program where it's for men specifically. And that's really what they get to is that you are worthy as you are. And, and, and here's, here's the powerful thing. And you still should still strive 
to be your personal best, whatever that looks like. And right. being being worthy or reverence for the base model doesn't sound like you're satisfied with being sucky. It sounds like you're <laughs> satisfied with where you're at. Can you dive into that distinction a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Marshall McLuhan would say technology actually does end up training us. You cannot get away from it. And so, again, understanding that that is going to happen regardless of, of, of what we think, having conversations about how we want technology to train us, what we need to do to intentionally sort of put guardrails on the elements that we have, the features that we come with in the base model, right? Make sure those don't go away. Those are the conversations that I want us to have as a community, as a society, as parents, as caregivers, as educators. Look, things are not going to slow down, but can we have a collective understanding of the dignity it means to be human first before we create the next thing, before we let it sort of into the hands of a privately owned company? Um, these are the questions that I think we need to be asking. Yeah. How do we do that? And I mean, we're, we're talking to school leaders here. So how do we do yeah. that in a school when there's all this technology around, there's all this, all this stuff and all these things that we need to do. How do we, how do we do that? Well, I think a couple of things, I think one, we have lost the ability to imagine in our Western culture, and there's a big statement, but I think there's a lot of truth to it. We've lost the ability to imagine apart from the topics of entertainment and convenience, right? We're really good in the United States at innovating new and interesting ways to stay entertained or to make life more comfortable or convenient. What we're not so great at or what we've sort of lost uh, the, the will to do is have an imagination for education, for housing, for energy, the areas that would benefit ordinary people the very most. And so I think one of the reasons that you see so much drama and so uh, much polarization just around public education right now in general is because we don't have a collective 30,000 foot understanding of what a profile of a graduate looks like in the United States, in a culture that is continually becoming automated. If we can start using our imagination for that purpose over, hey, let's just come out with a new app that makes life a little bit more convenient. Hey, let's come out with a new streaming service that sticks us in front of screens just a little bit more. I think we'll start to to, to see um, that, that, that sort of coincides with the, the, this reverence for the ordinary. And so I know that's a really big ask and it's it's very generalized, but as educators, if we can start implementing that imagination in students, one, that would be great. That's a great long-term solution. And a short-term solution is let's actually reverse engineer what we want our students to learn based on who we want them to be, you know, 18, 19, 20 years from now. Yeah. That's a great goal, CJ, and something that I think a lot of educators want to have happen. And the challenge becomes how do we 
how do we know what we want that person to look like when we don't know what the future holds and we don't know like so much of our education is focused on how do we prepare them for jobs in the future? Right. So how do you address that? Well, I think we are starting to see the through lines of what the world's going to look like in the next decade or two. And the reason I wrote the book is because all of that is happening in the private sector. We're leaving it to Facebook and Twitter or X now. We're leaving it to to uh, you know privately held or public you know uh, companies to really dictate all of that for us. And yet we are not being smart as uh, governments, as communities, as educators. I'm not saying educators personally aren't smart. I'm talking about the highest level systematically. We are not getting ahead of where guys like Elon and Zuckerberg and fill in the blank and Bezos, they already know where we're going. They've already got the game plan based on not only the data, the, the data, but um, you know, insights and like they, they have a pretty good understanding of where this thing is going. And we're still sort of catching up going, Oh man, it's a, did you know, like a lot of teenage girls are, you know, committing suicide over Instagram. I wonder why that is. Well, the data is not conclusive yet. So let's run a couple more tests. We're behind the eight ball. We need to get in front of the eight ball. Yeah, that's a that's a really fascinating idea that this is something that I've thought a lot about as well, that when social media came out, we in education, you know, we just let the social media companies do whatever they wanted. Not like we had any control over them, right. but we just went along for the ride. And with artificial intelligence, especially what I've been saying to educators is we need to have a voice and a seat at the table. And the way we do that is with what we what we use. And if we're going to use tools that uh, reject our humanity or don't recognize our desire for privacy or whatever the case may be, then these tech companies are just going to continue doing whatever it is that they want to do. And our attention and our money drives what they do. They're not going to continue working on something that does not make them money. I mean, that right. is, that's the long and short of it. They're not going to continue creating something that people don't use. And so if we can then get on the other side of that and say, here's what we value and this is what we want, right. we can influence things by saying, we're not going to use that because it doesn't do these things. Is that is that too big of an idea that's not really realistic to get that many people on board? No, I, I think it is the idea. I think we need a recalibration of some basic human values for the 21st century. In the book, I call them the nine beatitudes of media technology. I don't care what they're called, yeah. but I, we're talking, I, I'm thinking big because the stakes are so high. Like chat GPT just came out and everybody's like, oh my gosh, I think this is going to change everything forever. Everything's being exponentially uh, accelerated at a rate that we just cannot handle. So I'm, I'm going to talk big because the, the stakes are really, really big. We need another moving, you know, uh, elastic sort of document uh, that allows us to go, okay, let's point back to this. this these are the essential things we value as you know, as humans, the, the the fact that there's so little about media and technology in the United States Constitution, uh, it, it's just staggering to me 
with how much it runs our day-to-day lives as a society. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, I, I talk about in the book how you can, um, you can kind of overlay a lot of these same big cultural issues throughout history onto what's happening with media technology right now. Like you, uh, you got big tobacco in the sixties where they were like, well, let's just sort of like wait till the data is conclusive. Then you got climate change. Well, let's just wait till the data conclusive is conclusive. You're seeing the same exact conversations happening around social media, around uh, the metaverse, around AI. And if we're not careful, we're just going to repeat history. However, Bigger issue is that smoking, okay, that's part of your body. That's whatever that's your physical like. Um uh oh, I mentioned concussions too. Again, that's physical. That doesn't that doesn't affect every single human being. And then what was the other one? Climate change. Well, that affects everybody everybody pretty equally. So, but what I'm saying about uh media technology and really the lack of of discussion and regulation around around that in particular is that this is kind of like everything. Like we we're doing media technology right now. It's the way we transmit information, ideas, uh, communication with each other. It's everything. And the fact that we don't have a better grasp on how to navigate it, how to to use your uh, terminology, how to train it versus have it train us or the the creators train us. It's scary to me. And yet I remain hopeful because uh, I think people are waking up right now to the reality that uh, – time is 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 definitely of the essence and we're already again like i said behind the eight ball um we need to play some catch up yeah and it, it seems daunting to play catch up i have another podcast called cyber traps which yeah. um talks about a lot of this stuff as well and there are very real issues that we're facing that we really don't know how to solve and i love your idea of going back to having a reverence for the base layer and understanding who we really are and recognizing that that person is worthy. Picture this, a student drowning in tabs, tools, and notes, struggling to piece together a research project. Sounds familiar, right? Now, imagine all of that streamlined under one roof. That's Scribble. Scribble is more than just a tool, it's a game changer. Students can curate, annotate, cite, and write all in one place. Collaborative annotations, check. Automatic citations, check. Real-time feedback for educators, you bet. And the best part is it's not just about making tasks easier, about freeing up time for higher-level learning and critical thinking. Are you worried about AI plagiarism? With Scribble, students show their authentic work process, making it genuine and credible. And I mentioned it won the Soup's Choice Award for College and Career Readiness, So if you're ready to transform the way your school approaches research and writing, head over to scribble.com and see the magic for yourself. That's S-C-R-I-B-L-E.com. Can you talk to us about a collective journey and what that means and help us understand how that ties into it? Sure. This is, this is Jeff Gomez's idea, really brilliant uh, guy behind the scenes in the entertainment industry. But if you look at the way narratives are shifting in entertainment and pop culture, you know, for what millions of years we've relied on this, this basic narrative, this basic modality called the hero's journey, where there's one individual, usually it's a male, usually they're bringing, you know, fire back to the community. They're having to overcome some perilous circumstance and probably murder, kill, or at least banish an evil villain. The, problem with that narrative as ingrained into us as it is 
is that what happens when everybody all of a sudden has the ability to be their own hero, to tell their own stories? We need a new modality. And so that's where Collective Journey comes in. If you've seen shows like Ted Lasso, the movie Barbie and Kanto, Collective Journey stories, they don't have a hero. They they have conductors. They have people who are sort of these main characters who sort of uh, lead and and allow for the community to sort of band together and tackle a problem. But that community, that team, that ensemble is doing just that. They're tackling a problem. They're fighting against an outdated system that needs to be dismantled and reconciled. They're not going after a particular villain. If there are people who are perpetuating that system, if they are acting in a way that goes against what the community wants, they can be reconciled. They're not banished. They're not killed. They're invited into a new system. And that becomes sort of a meta uh, example of the way we need to lead our society right now in a world where everybody's got these little storytelling devices. And so, you know, one of your questions was, okay, how do we maintain that humanity in an education system where it's like, okay, well, we've got to use these tools. Like we can't just, you know, act like they're not there. And even if we do, kids are actually going to be bringing them into the classroom. By the way, they're going to be using them for jobs in 20 years as it is. So we can't, it's another reason why we can't just act like and pretend that they're not there. What we can do though, is teach them to use the little storytelling devices in their pocket or the storytelling devices that are available to them online or in the metaverse to tell collective journey stories, to tell stories that band us together, that help create a better community versus just perpetuate that hero's journey where only one person can triumph. And in order for that person to triumph, somebody else has to disappear. Yeah, you're you're causing me to do some deep thought here, and I think that's that's really great. Um, I I want to address that issue that you just spoke about about um, the hero's journey, where someone someone has to be the villain, and I think that that's the key to to what I'm thinking about right now because we do want we do want people to be the hero of their own lives. And to to be able to overcome the challenges that they face, and I I don't want to I don't want to lose that. But I also like what you're saying about how you don't have to have a person be the villain. And hmm. in in Ted Lasso, for example, um, the the villain in that story is not an individual person. Exactly. Even though they created a villain in the third season uh, with Nate, which which I don't think they needed to do because yeah. the challenges that everybody was facing were enough of a villain already. I really like that that approach. I haven't seen Barbie yet, but in Encanto, um, the the villain ended up being the grandma, but uh, but was was really this lack of belief in in who you are and this lack of love of yourself that we were talking about before. And so talk a little bit about how in this collective journey, this idea of the people who are quote unquote, bad actors, how do we, how do we help and support them as opposed to the hero's journey? 
Well, you know, to talk about the grandma in Encanto, she's not she's not necessarily a villain. She just is still believing in an old framework, in yeah. an old system. And the role of the collective is to help that person reconcile that old system with a new system. So again, they're not villains or, or bad actors in collective journey modality. They're not, they're not banished, but they are reconciled. And so that's a really interesting meta conversation we can be having. Cause again, we have these, all these little storytelling machines, kids are already, students are already doing, they're already telling stories. They always want to, but, but are we going to use, are we going to encourage them or, or, you know, just sort of let them use all these storytelling machines to become personal brands, to become farther disconnected from their ordinary human selves and become something that's larger than life but not necessarily real? Or are we going to educate them to use these little pocket devices, these little storytelling machines that they have at their fingertips to help bad actors or help people who are perpetuating false systems, old systems, understand that there is another way, that there is a new system to be reconciled to a new way of of uh, of community that to me are the kinds of stories uh that are the most beautifully told uh they're stories that are usually slow they're not made in a tiktok sort of moment of you know let me just do this in in 90 seconds and talk really fast they're uh they usually start with empathy interviewing other people unlike you speaking to the person who is perpetuating that system versus banishing them, right? They're carefully sort of edited, not in a way where you're taking stuff out that you don't like, but you're really being thoughtful about what pieces you're putting in sequence and when and how. These are the kinds of stories I think we can help students tell, share, and most importantly, discover within themselves and their communities yeah the the really challenging thing right now is that people who um are perpetuating these old systems or are could be perceived as the villains in the story are excoriated right now and not certainly not redeemed or saved they are they are banished even more than they may have right. been in the past that a right. small mistake is magnified and made into a, a much bigger issue. People are, you know, fired from jobs for something they did 20 years ago. And that's quite the opposite of what you're talking about. How do you address that? Well, it goes back to the forgotten art of being ordinary, right? I mean, it's a lot easier to cancel an avatar. It's a lot easier to banish a flat 2D picture or a metaverse version, a social media version of someone, proximity is going to matter all the more as we continue down this collective journey of the 21st century. Proximity being in physical closeness to another person. It's very, very difficult to banish somebody, to cancel somebody completely when you're standing this far apart from them in real life. It's very difficult to hold a stance against them that, well, that kind of person 
is bad because X, Y, and Z when you know their story intimately. And if you can't know their story in real life, in that proximity, again, we don't have to banish technology completely, but we can use the technology to help understand somebody intimately as we can, as intimately as we can in those confines. For example, it's really, really fun to start dunking on someone on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram when they make a mistake publicly. How often do we use that wonderful direct message feature that's there to say, hey, look, before I say this publicly, I just want to let you know that that really hurt me, what you said. And uh, here's why. You can actually have, it's becoming a very foreign concept to have a private conversation with somebody, whether that's using media technology or whether that's in person, whether it's actually getting, yeah, I'll, I can speak a lot more to that, but I think that's how we begin to curb some of that cancel culture that you were talking about by uh, forcing ourselves to see the ordinary human behind the avatar. Yeah, I I like that perspective a lot. And when we when we can see who someone really is, it makes it a lot more difficult to to shun them and treat them as an outsider or as an yeah. other. And yeah, I think that's really powerful. One thing we didn't get to yet that I'd like to get to is uh the story of Jerry Springer. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, I, I mentioned it early on because I talk about it a lot in the book. There's a pro. I grew up, uh, you know, in the 80s and 90s, and uh, pro wrestling was a really, really big deal. And and I'll explain in a minute if you just stick with me how pro wrestling has to do with Jerry Springer. But there was this this thing in pro wrestling culture called kayfabe, where you know everybody internally understood that these were characters that were being played, but it was marketed to kids and very, very intentionally as no, this is like a real sport. These people are real. People, they're not actors. And what you've seen as media technology has become more and more ubiquitous is that you've got this sort of misunderstanding or this this lack of knowledge as to what is real and what isn't. So I I, I talk about, I won't mention <laughs> mention the name, but my daughter was um, she was, you know, looking at YouTube when she was in kindergarten, she saw this really famous sort of YouTube YouTuber. And I was kind of reflecting on when I was a kid, you know, actors played, it was very clear the, 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 the lines that, you know, the boundaries like, you know, uh, Marla Cyrus played Hannah Montana, but for, for my kid, who's now 10 years old, they see a really successful YouTuber who's like, Oh, I have a mansion and I, you know, drive a, you know, BMW and all this, but they're, they're, their name is their name. They're not playing, you know, so that boundary between, between fake and real, I, I would call that another version of kayfabe. And another example I found out about recently is, you know, Jerry Springer, this guy was actually in, a brilliant politician in, in the Cincinnati, Ohio area before he became this television persona, which again, his name, the show was called Jerry Springer, but it wasn't really him. He was this, this really, really highly intelligent intellectual guy who was a voice that uh, I think America needed, uh, certainly uh, Cincinnati needed at the time, but he sort of left that for <laughs> his career in the early stages of 
reality television. So he's really, really, you know, huge on TV. And he decides, you know, I think I'm going to actually, I'm so good at this. And I, I keep on giving these speeches whenever we come back home to, to Cincinnati, you know, uh, basically campaigning for other, other politicians. He would, I, I kind of want to get back into this again. So they did a poll and everybody was like, okay, we'd actually vote for this guy. He just would have to give up his online or his, uh, it wasn't even online, his TV persona. And at that point, the guy couldn't get out of his contract. And so it was kind of a sad thing. It's like his personal brand that was sort of a version of kayfabe actually impeded him from being this genuine, ordinary, but incredibly hopeful and I would argue necessary voice that his community needed. And so we're going to need people. My big, big point about kayfabe and pro wrestling and Jerry Springer uh, is, is, is that we're going to need people who fight that lure of using media technology to create personal brands, characters over, uh, you know, overhyped heroes and instead use these tools to simply create better community which again is the purpose of collective journey versus sticking to that hero's journey mentality. Yeah. I, I think that's such a good illustration uh, to, to close us out with because it, it really exemplifies that his story specifically, he could have been a, uh, a politician who made a, a difference and was at one point and then uh, did his broadcast career after that and you know could have could have had some really powerful things happen there uh yeah. maybe maybe not we we won't ever know but instead you know was i guess seduced by this idea of continuing the the brand that he had and uh for whatever reason couldn't feel like he could give it up and and serve people in the way that maybe we'd say he should have that was his more authentic person right is mm. is really what uh what i interpreted from that am i am i off on that cj or or what do you think no i mean i think the story is is a lot more i got kind of give you the cliff notes it's it's, it's more nuanced because there was a little bit of scandal in there and everything but the, the the point is i think we all are coming to both on an individual level and as a collective uh you know communal level as 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 these tools are not showing any signs of going away if anything, they're becoming more and more ubiquitous. We are all being faced with the choice of whether to embrace the reverence for our ordinary selves or playing into this trap that says we have to project this pretend sort of image because that's what the algorithm likes and that's what the algorithm appreciates and, and creates virality well um cj this was this was great i appreciate having you on once again the book is called the art the forgotten art of being ordinary and you can get that all over the place um any other way you want people to connect with you or or work or come find you no i i think uh honestly going and buying the book uh go to your local bookstore and ask for it and uh, that that's a really, really fantastic way of just showing support for ordinary humans in ordinary businesses. I write a Substack 
newsletter called the Fuse Letter. So it's there to spark creativity. Uh, you can go to uh, CJ Cass, that's cjcas.substack.com, and you can connect with me on a pretty weekly basis there as well. Good. CJ, thanks so much for being part of Transformative Principle. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Jethro, this was fun. Thank you.